today on EdgeFX. Water isn't something out there. It's us. And so how we treat it is how we're treating ourselves, our kin, our more than human kin, trying to develop an imaginary whereby water isn't externalized, but something that is intimately flowing through all kinds of lineaments of connection, hopefully leads us to think differently about how we treat water. And in that case, you know, in that sense, um, it becomes an environmental issue, but from a very different starting point. Sociologist Elena Haidt speaks with feminist and environmental humanities scholar Astrida Nemanis, author of the book, Bodies of Water, Post-Human Feminist Phenomenology. They delve into the experience of bodies of water, including our own bodies. Astrida Nemanis asks us to think about how bodies of water transmit life-giving substances and carry histories of deep time, including residues of kinship. But bodies of water also become conduits of toxicity, capitalism, settler colonialism, anti-blackness, and misogyny. And it's these lineaments of connection that should help us understand our bodies and our relationships to the non-human world as we learn to live in the Anthropocene. So I guess I will begin by saying this is a question I like to ask anyone who thinks deeply or studies water. What is your personal connection to water and why did you choose to center your book around water? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in addition to the fact that I'm 80% made up of it, as are, yeah. you know, all people um, approximately, uh, what is my connection to water? I, I mean, it's a good question. And I think I would answer it differently now than I might have when I started doing this research. Because when I started, ooh, let's say, over a decade ago, thinking seriously about water, um, I was in my PhD, doing my PhD at York University in Toronto. And my field, if you could call it that, was feminist philosophy of embodiment. And I was thinking in a kind of materialist way about embodiment, phenomenologically. And, you know, at one point, if you're going to think about the interconnectedness, like from a feminist perspective of bodies with other bodies, it doesn't take very long for you to start thinking that that interconnection is not only with human bodies, right? Mm -hmm. So my initial plan, you know, as all PhD students, we had these grandiose plans that I would look at, you know, the human body as made up of air, of made up of food, of made up of soil, made up of water. Um, but luckily I started with water and I never left. <laughs> there was more than enough um, to go right there. You know, like the question, how did I start? Where did it come from? It was kind of like an accidental environmentalism. I mean, my, my personal life, I, you know, often had environmental interests and pastimes and things like that. But as a scholar, it was like feminist theory led me to think environmentally in a really direct mm -hmm. way. And then that opened up a whole different way for me to think about environmental concerns and issues in the wor world, right? Like starting from our own personal embodiment. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I think, too, it's, it's very cool to hear you have so many people thinking about the environment right now, and people are coming from such different vantage points, from personal experience of, of water, water scarcity, or a water disaster. Mm -hmm. And then also thinking how 
certain philosophers have led us to think more about the environment, which sort of leads to my next question about your book, Bodies of Water, where you just weave together so many diverse bodies of thought. And I, I just thought it was beautifully done. But I was wondering if you could give us sort of an overview of what your book is about mm-hmm. and what are those bodies of thought and why you chose to engage with mm-hmm. them. I guess that question begins with my answer to the last question, right? right? Um, And then at the time, again, I was thinking primarily through philosophical thinkers. But I suppose what came clear to me in a phenomenologically oriented method, which is, I suppose, what I would call the way I do it, you know, sort of starting with the thing in the world, you know, sort of Husserl's great dictum back to the thing itself, right? Like if you go back to the body of water itself, how do you learn about it? Where do you learn about it? A certain amount of that can happen from um, paying attention to one's own bodily waters. Like, you know, I drink a glass of water. Where does it go when I pee it out? Where does it go? Mm-hmm. But water, you know, is amazing for many reasons. One of them is that although it's something we are so intimate with, it's also very elusive. It's hard to pin down quite literally. Mm -hmm. So when I started sort of expanding a phenomenological method, like how do I get back to the thing itself? How do I get back to this thing, bodies of water, to find out what that is and what it means in the world? I realized that I had to rely on all sorts of different kinds of knowledges, not only a direct embodied sensory knowledge, which was my training as a phenomenologist, but also other kinds of stories or histories or sciences, you know. And I I kind of, I suppose, adopted this perspective whereby all of these things, whether it's a, you know, fantastical story um, about an aquatic uncle or whether it's, you know, a Darwinian story about the evolution of whales, or whether it's, you know, scientific fact about, you know, a mammalian diving reflex. Mm -hmm. All of these things become embodied sensory ways of knowing the world. You know, even if they're at a slight remove, whoever, you know, wrote that or thought that or explored that began from the question, you know, how are we in the world? Yeah. Well, I mean, and and also what that makes me think about, which you talk about in your book, is it's it starts with how we know about the world, but those narratives also influence how we act mm. about the world and, mm-hmm. and how we personally think about and and know these um these things outside of ourselves in water. Right. I mean, you asked if I could give a sort of overview of what the book does. And I suppose the shortest answer to that is, by writing this book, I hoped to um, explore how, you know, how we know the world directly relates to how we act in the world. So, you know, how we know water and what we think water is Mm -hmm. directly influences how we treat water. If we think of water as, you know, a commodifiable resource, if we think of water as something out there, if we think of, you know, water scarcity or water contamination as something that happens to certain communities, right? This sort of externalization will really affect the way we treat water in our sort of quotidian everyday existences. So by trying to develop an imaginary 
you know, of bodies of water that include humans and plants and animals and geological and hydrological and all sorts of other kinds of, you know, meteorological bodies of water, it sort of tries to generate this starting point whereby water isn't something out there. It's us. And so how we treat it is how we're treating ourselves, our kin, our more than human kin, trying to develop an imaginary whereby water isn't externalized, but something that is intimately flowing through all kinds of lineaments of connection, hopefully leads us to think differently about how we treat water. And in that case, you know, in that sense, um, it becomes an environmental issue, but from a very different starting point. I mean, one great example, I think, of what you were just talking about is your discussion of toxic breast milk. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could sort of walk us through what that discussion was Mm -hmm. and um, because for me that was one of the most powerful things of thinking about like how we are so connected to these flows and the ethical implication Mm -hmm. of those of that connection and of those flows. So this is a great example and it's not my example it's something that I've taken from other researchers and scholars. I think I first learned about um, contaminated breast milk probably from an article, and I, I don't remember if it was in the New York Times or the Atlantic or something, you know, one of those kinds of publications by a journalist named Florence Williams, who wrote about, you know, the sort of chemical contamination that she discovered in her own breast milk. And one of the startling things about that article is that, you know, the whole question of biomagnification, right? So when a woman whose bodily waters have contaminants in them, because um, of the way breast milk works, it concentrates those contaminants and then downloads them into an infant mm-hmm. in you know, much magnified ways. Okay, so startling fact. Wow, how my bodily waters then are connected to you know, infants or other human bodies. Now, though, if we sort of take a sort of more expansive view of that question, learning from Inuit and Innu researchers working in the Arctic, we learn that... Breast milk in the polar region is, or in the particular in the Arctic region, is far more contaminated than breast milk in the so-called, you know, industrialized Western world. Why is that? Well, again, through different kinds of lineaments of water, you know, different kinds of connections between bodies of water, not breast to infant, but, you know, factory to river to acid rain to, you know, wind and precipitation through ocean currents, these contaminants are carried by different kinds of bodies of water to the Arctic, where then they again biomagnify up food chains so that, you know, in a thumb-sized piece of muktuk, a person could consume, you know, more PCBs than are advisable, you know, in a year, you know. So what happens is that we get this kind of environmental colonialism whereby breastfeeders in the Arctic are at far, you know, have a far greater body burden, even though they themselves will not have been responsible for the pollution that has caused that body burden. It's traveling through, you know, planetary bodies of water and then being transmitted through, you know, human bodies of water into infants. And for me, this like kind of brings everything together, right? It's both bodies of water as conduits, but not only of, you know, waters that are life-giving, like breast milk should be, 
but conduits of capitalism, colonialism, conduits of you know toxins, conduits of life changing and life altering substances, not only life giving substances. And it implicates not only human bodies, but more than human bodies from, you know, the the plankton that are eaten by the fish, that are mm -hmm. eaten by the seals, that are eaten by the humans, you know, you sort of get these uh, non-human animal bodies also implicated in this toxic transit. So you get a sort of multi-species environmental colonialism that shows in a very um, disturbing way how we are all bodies of water. And as bodies of water, we are all connected, but we don't all experience this connection in the same way. You know, and the question of body burden here then becomes very salient, not only in the sort of environmental justice language of it, but also, you know, in what kind of burden is that when you want to breastfeed your child, but you realize that more healthy to them would, would be to feed them formula, you know? It's a uh, burden there takes on not only a sort of um, scientific valence, but a very emotional and affective valence as well. Yeah. Well, and it really changes how you think about when you were talking about conduits, like conduits of, of harm and mm. historical harm, you know? That's right. Because, um, so my research right now is, is looking at lead in Milwaukee. And it, one of the things that's, I mean, this is like a problem that affects so many people in our country, in the U.S., and one of the things that is that keeps getting brought up is, you know, lead, it deposits itself in um, bones. And so when women are pregnant, the lead gets released back and it affects their baby. So even if you consumed lead when you were 15, mm -hmm. it's going to affect your child whenever you get pregnant at a later stage, mm -hmm. even if you're not currently drinking lead. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of those those flows and those conduits of harm, they don't necessarily, it's not something that we can look at right now. We have to also look at like huge historical patterns. My, uh, my colleague and friend Janine McLeod has written a beautiful chapter on water and material memory. Mm -hmm. And she describes bodies of water as, you know, containing all of the pasts that ever were, and mm -hmm. in a very beautiful way, talks about water as a way to connect communities intergenerationally across time and across geographies. And I'm very indebted to her thinking about water and time this way, but I think it's also important to flip, or not flip, but sort of reorient her work and think also about what other kinds of histories then gather in waters and the deep time memories of waters, you know, not only connections to past kin, which is lovely and beautiful, but connections to, you know, settler colonialism and anti-blackness and misogyny and all sorts of political, cultural, economic lineaments of connection that are also then transmitted through water. In your example, very literally in lead poisoning or in the example of, you know, Arctic breast milk through other kinds of toxins, right? So mm -hmm. we think of, you know, the question, what's in the water? You know, literally and materially, there are things like lead or PCBs, but there are also histories, both um, beautiful and wonderful of connections to ancestors and multi-species kin, mm -hmm. but also histories of those political and cultural 
pervasive problems like settler colonialism or racism. Yeah. So you you talk a lot about this the sort of ethical implications of, of thinking more expansively, and we've already you know touched on some of those. But what are sort of some of your thoughts about going forward? What we could do better as this is a big question, <laughs> yeah. Um, but as activists, as scholars, to really think about the ways in which we deal with water and the environment as we were going through such mm-hmm. big, drastic changes? Well, of course, that's a, a question with many answers, right? right? We need to do everything, right? <laughs> all hands on deck. Let's pull out all the stops. Yeah. Um, I suppose... I. A more modest way to answer your question then is what do I think my work might contribute to that, you yes. know, and what what could sort of a, I mean, come on, I'm a scholar who's kind of a philosopher and a cultural thinker. I mean, I'm not going to save the world, right? Um, but what my work might be able to contribute, I think, is again, constantly insisting that we attune ourselves to our relationship to water, you know, not to imagine it as something out there or different or abstract from us, but something that is, you know, constantly the backdrop to our lives, bring it into the foreground. How do we feel, think, relate to it? How do we treat it both in our quotidian ways, but then, you know, sort of extended further. Another thing, though, that I hope my work contributes to um, is insisting that water is not only an environmental question, right? Mm. So um, as a feminist scholar and as someone whose background is in gender studies, really, it's very important for me to always look at the intersections between environmental degradation and misogyny, anti-blackness, settler colonialism, ageism, you know, ableism, all of these questions that, I think because of the siloing of academic disciplines and things like that, have been traditionally treated as you know, human cultural questions. Mm-hmm. When we start to look at um, everything from environmental justice through to, well, even environmental science, though, we start to see that's impossible to separate those cultural questions from the environmental ones. Mm-hmm. So um, thinking more about what all of the amazing work done by feminist and queer and indigenous and, uh, you know, Crip scholars have done, how can all of those amazing resources be brought to thinking about our relationship to water and other environmental questions? I think that's still, I mean, that's happening in amazing ways. And I'm learning from, you know, those scholars all the time, but focusing on that, right? Like mm-hmm. water is not abstract. And water is not experienced by abstract humans. It's experienced, whether in good or bad ways, by humans whose lives are situated by all of those things. So one thing that came out of what you were just saying, too, and then also I just was thinking a lot about as I read your book was you talk about this idea of post-human gestationality Mm and using Lucere Gare's work Mm -hmm. to sort of develop that idea. And I really liked your discussion about how it ch- challenges some of these, especially heteronormative and binaristic views of bodies. And I was wondering, because Eric Gray is a controversial figure, mm-hmm. um, and is not really known for doing that, you know, is sort of known for re-inscribing mm-hmm. a lot of that. 
Could you first tell us what the concept means and then sort of speak about how you view it mm -hmm. in sort of challenging mm -hmm. that? Yeah, thanks for that question. It also speaks to, I think, what we do as scholars, you know, as a critical practice. Mm -hmm. And so I have to say that probably like many people, my PhD education was mostly white, you know, in terms of reading white philosophers, European philosophers, and cultural thinkers. Sometimes you get a feminist, but you know, that's <laughs> if you're lucky. Um, when I read Irigare, and particularly her work, Maureen Lover, um, of Friedrich Nietzsche, I was just so struck by how materialist she was, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Her philosophy of embodied water was really looking to the mechanics of water in the body, how that connects out to water in the broader world. And I was just like, wow, you know, this is what I've been waiting for. It just spoke to me so deeply. Yeah. So I started to, to really think about water then as, you know, a gestational medium through a rigor eye gestating not only, say, a baby in a sort of reproductive, you know, cis female body, but gestating all sorts of different kinds of lives and relations. And, and I'll come back to this in a second. Yeah. But then, you know, as I'm working with the Rigorai over many years, as you do, you know, the problems in her work that you've addressed, you know, a certain binarism around sexuality, um, a certain cisgenderism, you know, that's pretty undeniable in some of the things that she writes became mm -hmm. really problematic to me. But then as a scholar, you know, you're sort of faced with this question, you know, it was a rigore in her writing that really gestated my own thinking, <laughs> yeah. quite literally. So then what do I do? Do I just drop her, you know? And so for me, it became very important to both honor what I'd learned from her, but not give her a pass, you know, mm -hmm. like, how do we take these lessons, but problematize them and push them in a way that she might not have pushed them herself. And I think that's, you know, was the important moment for me. It's like I can use her without having to necessarily think this is how she would use her own work. Mm. Um, and so what emerges is a concept of post-human gestationality. I mean, my idea here is that as bodies of water, we are all gestational of life, you know, that's very obvious in a sort of amniotic human context where, you know, the amniotic fluid gestates another human body into being. But that's also the case, as I tried to show, that as bodies of water, whether we are a human or an animal or a river or a cloud or a reservoir, we are always giving our water on to another body. Like what water does is it circulates, right? Mm -hmm. It circulates and it gives its water over for another body to take it up and become something else, which is, I think, for me, another way of saying gestationality. So to be gestational is by no means limited to a female cisgendered body. We are all gestational as bodies of water. And so what do we do with that responsibility, right? What, what kinds of waters do we want to give on? Can we give on, you know? How do the waters that we take in influence what we can give on to other bodies in order for them to gestate? And so all of a sudden, we're completely implicated within an environmental politics of water in terms of the waters we absorb and then the waters we pass on. I, I really, the one thing I did want to talk about was your discussion about Anthropocene water and mm. how we manage Anthropocene and think about 
water in the Anthropocene or Anthropocene water. And I, I would love you to talk about the challenges bodies of water specifically, specifically pose to Anthropocene water. Mm-hmm. So again, my thinking on this is really influenced by others. I'd spent a lot of time thinking about what Anthropocene water might mean by spending time with the artworks of Anishinaabe uh, artist uh, Rebecca Belmore, Mm -hmm. thinking about her works like Fountain and Temple that have both posed very different relationships to water. In Fountain, you know, I think it's a real indictment of our embodied or my embodied accountability as a settler, you know, on stolen land and stolen waters asking me to think about water as blood. And, you know, that has so many connotations that could take in many different ways. I mean, it's a beautiful video work, very challenging, important video work. And then another piece that she does called Temple, where she has these little kind of milk bags, like baggies of water stacked up on this plinth, um, sort of the very managerial, sort of commodified, itemized understanding of water as something that can sort of be contained and traded and it's all kind of exchangeable. Mm -hmm. And that second artwork, I think, for me then, got me thinking about what is Anthropocene water, you know, and uh, coming also out of an important book by Jamie Linton, a geographer called What is Water, where uh, Linton tracks the sort of history of modern water, you know, and how it came out of the science of hydrology to become this thing that was no longer waters in the plural, to be storied and experienced in all sorts of different ways, to be this uh, substance that is exchangeable and quantifiable and manageable. So although Anthropocene water can be many different things, one thing I think it is, is, um, you know, this kind of manageable thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we try to do as part of the Anthropocene is, I I think we try to come to grips with the massive angst we feel and trauma we feel in the face of the devastation of the earth by trying to manage it, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's kind of this double-edged blade then, you know? By managing it, we try to get a control over it and try to feel a little bit less untethered and lost at sea, but managing it compounds the problem. You know, we can't contain water. We can't control it. It is unruly. We have to give ourselves over to what it wants to be, which is many, many different things um, and not just, you know, managed by humans. So I think this is kind of the, the dilemma that we're facing. And, okay, this is really big and philosophical, uh, the <laughs> dilemma we're facing in the Anthropocene, but is trying to learn from water, you know, learn from water that management and control is important in certain circumstances for sure. You know, we have so many... Uh, problems of contamination or scarcity that will benefit from a bit of, you know, policy and control mechanisms and sort of trying to manage things in some kind of way um, as a kind of redistribution or a cleaning up or something like that. But if we overdo it on the control and management side, we're going to lose touch with those things we began by talking about, the way our bodies are attuned to waters and its strange and queer rhythms and temporalities and all the things it gathers and all the histories that are carried in it. You know, management and control can't track those things. We have to give ourselves over to other kinds of knowledges and stories and experiences. And I think that is what it's going to take to sort of get on with things in the Anthropocene with 
any kind of grace. Yeah. Well, and also what what you're saying, it just made me think like it's trying to substitute the circulation of water, which is constantly just trying to flow into different places. And I mean, that is part of what water does, right? Mm-hmm. It's trying to do that for some rational circula- circulation, mm-hmm. circulation mm-hmm. in the market. I mean, I even mm-hmm. think the policies that we have where we talk about TMDLs and, and tr- actually trading with mm-hmm. farmers to see, like, can we pay them to have more environmentally friendly practices so that we can pollute the water more. We know that we're putting this much into the water, so farmers need to do this. But it's interesting how water, it doesn't really care about what we do. It doesn't really work that way, but we are still trying to impose this other circulation. I said I said earlier that, you know, this idea that how, how we imagine water influences how we treat it, right? Mm -hmm. So this, I think, really connects into the question about Anthropocene water. Because if we imagine water as a, you know, containable, tradable, commodifiable, exchangeable substance where, you know, the water in an aquifer that's thousands and thousands and thousands of years old is somehow the same as the water I'm just going to take out of my tap when I go, you know, back to my room and have a drink, is the same as the water, you know, that's in the body of a beaked whale or the same as the water that, you know, rains, you know, in a forest in, in, in Ecuador. Like these waters are not the same. Right. You know, part of my challenge in, in the book Bodies of Water was making the argument, yes, it's all the same water. This water is all connected. It circulates. It's moving through bodies, you know, from time immemorial, you know, forever. Like water is forever. Right. But it's also always different. You know, and it's specific and it's particular and it's storied and it's cited and it's both of these things. Water is what we have absolutely in common and our our particular situation in relation to water is also absolutely differentiated, again, by those structures and lineaments of power mm-hmm. and also by, you know, geography and sense of place and attachment to history, right? So water is always common, but always different. And that's what we have to get our heads around. In the Anthropocene, treating it only as exchangeable in the same thing all the time in every place is part of the problem. Yeah. So I guess what I want to do now is talk more about the sort of interdisciplinary work or types of projects that you've been involved in, in, like the seed box and even thinking with water, how did those come about? And are you still trying to really encourage this interdisciplinary thought about water and environmental change? I would imagine a lot of people who work in the environmental humanities are interested in interdisciplinarity right. and you know, talking with other people and um, communicating their research to all kinds of publics. I think what's maybe specific about water is, again, this fact that it is so elusive in so many ways. Like, how do you know the bottom of the sea, right? Like, there is no one discipline or no one story that's going to tell you conclusively and definitively what's at the bottom of the sea. I mean, we can find some things out with, you know... Uh, you know, those little robots that, tra- you know, troll a lo- trawl rather along the bottom of the sea. We can find things out from, you know, poets and, and, and mariners. I mean, what I guess I'm trying to say is when it comes to water, we really benefit so much from a multiple of perspectives. 
And that's how we really get a sense of its robustness and its capaciousness and its uncontainability and its unknowability once we put all of those voices into the conversation and see, and we still don't know everything there is to know. So I'm interested in interdisciplinarity specifically about water, but I think that's transferable to all kinds of ecological questions, right? The more voices you have in the room, the more you can actually start to piece together what this thing that you're looking at actually is or what it means. Um, so probably it's also relevant that I wasn't really trained in a discipline. You know, I, I did not come up through any degree from my undergrad through to my master's or my PhD that actually had a very specific disciplinary training. Mm -hmm. They were all multi, you know, interdisciplinary programs in their, in their own way. So because of that, you know, it was a bit of a, a burden trying to find a job and not having a discipline that you can sell. But of course, it was a total gift when it comes to doing research. It's not like I start from the place of this is my method and this is what I'm going to do. You know, you start with a question and you say, okay, what do I need to do to start answering this question? And so some of the projects I'm involved in now, so for example, I'm doing some research around my um, hometown in Hamilton, Ontario, in a particular body of water called Windermere Basin. You know, I'm just bringing everything I can to that question, going there with different people, walk shopping, holding a youth camp there, working with artists there, reading the scientific literature, doing some citizen science, reading what local poets and, and writers have written about this place, spending a lot of time there and just seeing what I can learn from that dropping a hydrophone into the water, what will I hear, you know, giving it pregnancy tests and, you know, <laughs> seriously drug tests. Like I'm just really capaciously trying to bring all of these different perspectives and not just me alone, but with people, with non-people, like with animals in the sky and the weather all together. What can I learn about this body of water? You know, that might seem like it's an important story to tell. So, you know, with that kind of really mixed methods approach, um, that's what's led me to be really involved in projects that adopt a similar approach, right? Mm. Projects that really want to try to break down some of those disciplinary silos that we're so, you know, hamstrung by in scholarship so often, um, that open up places for people to learn together and learn with the world um, has seemed you know, important, but it's also just been so invigorating for my own thinking and writing. I sometimes kick myself that I do a little bit too much kind of workshops and talks and conferences and being around other people, but that is the lifeblood of my work. You know, I mm -hmm. couldn't imagine just sitting with books and learning about water in the way I can when I involve all of these other bodies of water, you know, in the room. That's when my 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 work and my thinking really starts to take off. So, you know, we all know that all scholarship is collaborative, but I really want to think deeply and act deeply on what that collaboration actually looks like and what it what it means, you know, yeah. collaborating all the time with all the books I'm reading and all the bodies I'm with and all the weathers that are wrapping me around, you know, these are all collaborations that deeply inform my, my work. Right. And thinking more expansively about what does interdisciplinarity oh, yeah. mean, right? D does it mean that we're just working within disciplines in academia? and Or does it mean also actually working with all these disciplines? Mm -hmm. And all of these, you know, it's, it's very hard to think about how to do research with 
non-humans, right? Yeah. But how do we bring those? those I mean, because of course we're doing research with non-humans all the time. It's just that we don't acknowledge it as such, right? right? So how do you bring an acknowledgement of that into your research becomes a good question. And, you know, sometimes the actual doing the collaborative research is okay. And then you hit the stumbling block of how do you publish it or put it out in the world, right? I had this amazing opportunity last year, well, actually for the last couple of years, to work with my sister, who is a marine biologist and a veterinary pathologist on a particular case that I was looking at in the Baltic Sea. And that was amazing. I mean, to think not only alongside my literal kin, um, whose body is built of the same waters that my body is built out of, but who has a really different way of looking at water and you know, was a great, um, a great person to write with in terms of, no, that's, that's not the way we would say that. You can't say that. That's too loosey-goosey. A scientist would not accept that, right? <laughs> but writing together, you know, nonetheless, learning from each other's different tools and methods and ways of looking at the world was amazing. Now, we published a little piece out of it, but it wasn't peer-reviewed. You know, it wasn't in a journal. I mean, it was in a, in a, in a great journal, Cultural Geographies, but in, in a little section that includes um, field notes that aren't, you know, peer-reviewed in the same sort of double-blind way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, her discipline wouldn't probably really accept a journal article in a cultural studies journal. You know, my discipline is more accepting, but still finding ways to bring the scientist's voice in that, you know, is respectful for, you know, to their knowledge and their standards of, you know, scholarship is really difficult. So mm-hmm. I think we have to do a better job of that, you know, Probably every university that I know has in its strategic plan, you know, the goal of interdisciplinary research. Okay, great. So now we're doing that. Now we have to figure out the mechanisms for putting that in the world in ways that are recognized and valued, which at the moment is a a big stumbling block. So what kind of, you, you just spoke to this a little bit more, but what kind of work do you hope to see more of? Or what kind of work do you want to see done? There is so much amazing work in the world. I have to say that maybe a more specific take on your question would be what kind of work do I want to see more within the you know, academy, within sort yeah. of university research type scholarship. I think that we need to do a better job of getting rid of the hierarchy that says that an academic paper told in a linear fashion with technical language is the best means of addressing the acute issues that we're facing in the world. We're not really often moved by that sort of thing. And in the way, say, that we are moved by artworks and testimony and conversations and, you know, theater and... um, you know, experiences in the world. And I think one thing is clear, right? Like if the facts and if rational, important, scientifically verifiable facts were all we needed in order to act differently in the world, well, frankly, we, we have a lot of that already and we're still not acting differently. We need to feel and be moved. And I think we, as an academy, needs to find ways of letting in kinds of scholarship, research, and sort of research outputs, you know, using Mm -hmm. the outputs word, um, that can move people in different ways. And stuff that's going to travel beyond 
our academic walls as well. We need to be able to engage with really different kinds of publics across the board. And I think if we can do that better, our research will be more meaningful. So final question, what projects are you currently working on or what, what is next for you? I'm currently writing a book um, that doesn't have a title, which is kind of unfortunate, um, but that's looking at water as an archive of feeling. I'd borrow that term from Anne Svetkovich, who's a queer theorist, but because it's the title of her book, <laughs> I can't really use it as the title of my book, <laughs> but I really am taken by her idea that archives are not just sort of the official record. I'm going back to the sort of managerialism or containment of sort of Anthropocene thinking. Archives aren't just official records, but they're also repositories of all kinds of affect and emotion and feeling and histories and possibilities that can sort of engender different ways of relating to the world. And so I'm very interested in taking her theory and using it to look at bodies of water as archives. And so I'm looking at some particular case studies as archives of feeling. Another parallel project, though, that I'm, I've been working on for a few years with my colleague Jennifer Hamilton in Australia is really um, a, more like a feminist one in, in sort of the field-building sense. I'm really interested in how um, feminist work, thinking, activism is or is not taken up in my field of environmental humanities. Mm -hmm. So, again... I mentioned earlier how I think that environmental thinking can really benefit from all of the important social justice thinking that's happened within feminism and critical race studies and, and indigenous studies and elsewhere. You know, it's actually now become a research project of mine as well to look at, analyze how feminism has or hasn't been taken up within all kinds of environmental discourses and what it means when it is or isn't, you know, how it sort of gets snuck in and what's the effect of that. Um, what is the effect of kind of naming feminist theorists, but not actually taking their feminist commitments on board, mm -hmm. you know, so politics of citation in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. This is um, a really interesting question for me as someone who's job, I think, you know, now in a, you know, a permanent academic position is to make also the institutional context in which I work more open, more accommodating, more pleasurable and comfortable for all kinds of bodies that academia has traditionally sort of kept out. Yeah. I just want to say that it's been really lovely talking with you. And I, I think you give a lot for us to think about as academics about what our role should be and also what sort of work we want to do and how it's going to impact others. And I I just I just really enjoyed talking with you. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much, Elena. Yeah. It's been my pleasure. That was Elena Haidt, graduate student in sociology at the University of Wisconsin Madison, speaking with Astrid Anemanis whose book, Bodies of Water, Post-Human Feminist Phenomenology, is available now from Bloomsbury Press. She is Senior Lecturer of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney, Gadigal Country, Australia, and is the co-editor of the collection, Thinking with Water, published by McGill Queen's University Press. Learn more about her work at astridanemanis.net. 
You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Laura Perry and me, Sarah Thomas. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. Stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks. And you can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. We're now even available on Spotify. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMAG. And as always, keep up with a steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.